Hey, it's Christy. Welcome to Do the Work. Today and every day, we'll talk about things that really matter. You, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. We'll discuss what emotional work looks, sounds, and feels like in our day-to-day lives. Relationships are what matter most, and they can be complicated. If you'd like a better connection with yourself, with others, and with your God, you are in the right place. So glad you're here. Welcome back to Do the Work. So happy to be here today with Jim MacArthur. And I'm going to introduce you, Jim. Welcome. So glad you're here. And we're using a new system today. So yeah. here we go. Yeah. But you're a technical marvel. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. That We don't know that. But if I just break out into song because I'm holding this mic now, you'll know all my inner dreams. Are- <laughs> okay. Let me introduce you, Jim, before I really introduce you and why I've asked you to come on today. Jim grew up in Coronado, California, and grew up in a very troubled family. And he, oh, he's so genuine when he talks about that. So we'll probably talk about that a little later. Um, He was a clinical professor at BYU. He's a psychologist in university. uh, He was a psychologist at the University Counseling Center, the associate director and director part of the time. He taught life planning and decision making for young adults. He taught Book of Mormon marriage and family a few years. He taught at BYU for 38 years. He's been married to Sweet Sherry for 55 years. And together, well, wait, I'm saying that wrong, but from beginning to end, they have 10 children. And Jim, I've been listening to um, some of your speeches that you've given at BYU I can you tell us the your teenage? Can you remember the ages of? You described you said how old they all were within when they were teenagers. Yeah, that's a shocker. Yes, I seriously was like, what? Do you remember like your oldest down oh, your youngest? Do I remember? <laughs> well, okay. So this is why I know about mental illness. <laughs> Yeah, we had 10 children in 12 years, two sets of twins. Together. 23 months apart. So when the second set of twins were born, the oldest, we had eight children at that point, and the oldest was seven. So they were seven, six, five, four, two, two, brand new, brand new. So there's Eight kids, nobody above seven. Oh, my. And so, yeah. So this is when I was introduced to mental illness. (laughs) Okay. So then they grew up in the teenage years. So you would have had 18. Yeah. I had eight teenagers at one time. Yeah. At one point. Yes. And eight in college one semester. Oh, my land. Right now we have four in their 50s. And six in their forties. I I want to clap for you and Sherry. Oh, oh go ahead, but we really don't have time. <laughs> okay, I'll clap when I share. Sherry, the Sherry's the one that had the children. Yeah. I've never had a child. It's so. really thanks yeah. for clarifying. <laughs> Sherry is this beautiful, small framed woman. So I cannot imagine her carrying two sets of twins and ten total. Yeah. Well, her greatest desire in life from the time I met her was to be a mother. That's all she wanted was to be a mother. So she she still loves being a mother and she's got a zillion grandkids and great grandkids and 
so beautiful. It's so beautiful to hear and see. When I asked you about uh, biography, just this information, there's so much more. I know that Jim and I belong to the same religion, and um, I know that he has spent much of his adult life serving and leading in different callings as um, in, in lots of different callings. So that's actually beautiful as well, even as you served um, your family. <clears throat> but in, in his bio, he said, my highest personal value at my age is not what I've accomplished, but it is my family and being faithful in the restored gospel. He said, ask me anything else. You all know my, about my weaknesses, my worries, endless. So yeah. thank you for being genuine. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Jim, I, here's, here's why I wanted you. I, I'm, I appreciate all that you've learned and all that you've given in your profession and in your community and in your religion. But I run about four to six times a week. And very often when I go for my morning run, I'm going down the hill and you're coming up the hill and you will stop and I'll stop and we'll chat. And after a few of these conversations, I thought, why are we not recording these conversations? (laughs) Because here's how it usually goes. Hi, hi, Jim. Hi, Christy. How are you doing? And I'll, I'll genuinely, I'll generally ask you how are you doing and you'll say what do you usually say jim oh 50 50 <laughs> yeah yeah and then he'll say how are you christy and i'll say you know what? i'm doing mostly well and he'll shake his head and then he'll say to me how are you really doing i can never give up the psychologist <laughs> no to me and it makes me cry it makes me emotional to say that because in my personal life, I, I am, well, I am mostly well. I have so many good things in my life. And I have some really painful things in my life as well. And that second question of how are you really doing yeah. gives me like an indicator that you actually care, that you want to know how I'm really doing. And as you've learned, I'll open right up. I'll share. I feel safe in that space. So this conversation is just a carry through, uh, a carry on. I don't know what the word is, but a follow through or of our conversations that we have sure. on the hill. Yeah, it's just spontaneous. From the more real. It's real. And it's, um, yeah, people are in this world today are leery of being real because or honest or putting all their cards on the table because they're not sure what the public around them public meaning just people right will do with whatever they say how far do i open up how honest can i be will they laugh at me will they think poorly of me and i think everybody has a public self and a private self. That's the way I've always coined it. So when people start talking to me in therapy, if I think they're giving me their public self, I say, okay, hold it a minute. Let's, mm. let's go down a level and tell me 
the same thing, but tell it to me from your private self. Oh, without filters. Yeah, no filters. Well, there's always some filters, but there's less filters. And if they trust me, then they'll, I say, put all their cards on the table. And they'll say sometimes, well, I've never said this to anybody. Yeah. I say, well, you can say it here. And uh, every, I think people long for more places to put all their cards on the table because they want to be accepted for all of them, not for the manicured part of them. I've had so many people tell me, you know, people like me or they know me in this way. It's because I give them my manicured self. I give them my cleaned up self. And I think if they knew more, that would change. And I don't want it to change. And it's too risky to let it change. And so I'm going to keep my private self tucked away. Yeah. I want to keep tapping into that because to me, that is one of the reasons we have so much pain in our lives today and in our relationships. If we can't be authentic and genuine, then really we're just kind of always on show. We're always trying to just make sure that people see the good in us. And we will never feel content in ourselves because we'll know that we're we're not being authentic. We're on stage. Yeah. That's playing exactly a part. Right. Yes. And if you're on stage playing a part, I mean, everybody is on stage playing a part. For sure. But there are people who can come into your life that you meet and they can let you know that uh, you can don't have to play the part for just a little short time. And it's so relieving for that to happen. I agree. So where do we learn to only present the best parts of us? Well, we're, we're schooled from the time we're little to show our merit badges yeah so you show your merit badges or your good that's your good stuff yeah you know that you were a good student or you were the president of your company or you were whatever and everybody applauds that and they like that and they compliment you on that well who doesn't want to be applauded and complimented and thought well of and you start connecting the two yeah okay it's It's when I talk about my merit badges that I'm more acceptable. So I'm not going to go to the private self because in the private self, I may think highly of some of my merit badges, but I also have some really, really hard stuff. And I think people will go away from me if I do that. So when I was a mission president in Chile, one thing I would do with the missionaries right off is to say, okay, and when I go to zone conference, I would say, this is a group of maybe, you know, 50, 60 missionaries. And I'd say, okay, how many of you have been depressed since you saw me last? Raise your hand. Yeah. And don't chicken out. Yeah. So uh, no, quite a number of raise their hand. And I'd say, okay, now you know that I've had moderate depression my whole life. And the first time they hear me say would hear me say that, they just look shocked. Yeah, like wait a minute, he's our leader. Yes, how could he have a moderate depression? 
his whole life. And look, he's really functioning pretty pretty well. He's a little weird, but he's functioning pretty well. I'm up there, like, fun, yeah, functioning, showing up. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's doing the work. As you would, as you would say, thanks for the plug. And I would, and I would go, and that's that would be my point. My point is, you don't have to be all put together and polished and pretty, and flawless and cleaned up in order to do the work. Matter of fact, some of the most beat up people are some of the most wonderful servants because they get it, get and it. they get other people who are also struggling and then the other people say well i'm gonna i'm gonna bring out my private self with him or her yeah because they're a little dinged up and i'm a little dinged up and i think we can talk the same language yes and then you're free you're free in that moment with that person you don't have to be free with everybody mm-hmm. no but you do need to feel free with some people and they, you know, when I was growing up in my two alcoholic parent family, I had teachers at school who who gave me that what I what I just described. They gave me that, and I just embraced them emotionally, and they guided me down the road because they understood me, and it was a, it was just it saved my life. You know what? As you said that, it saved my life. Almost literally. Really? Because of the abuse and all that was happening in your own home? Yeah. I mean, I had two alcoholic parents for my first 17 years till I left home. And uh, it was just chaos and everything was swirling around me. I I was just a troubled child. I just didn't know where to turn or who could help me or who I could talk to. It was my teachers at school that gave me what I just described. And I thought, I want to. I want to go down the road in my adult life and be in my, that's kind of how I got into my profession. I wanted to be that person to other people, both professionally and more casually. Oh my gosh. So shout out to teachers of all varieties and your ability to love and see and connect with the children. It is so critical. When you said that, it actually reminded me, I have a friend here in our neighborhood who went abroad for half of the year and she shared the other day with a bunch of friends that when her life gets hard and she's going through some really painful things in her own life she calls Jim MacArthur Uh. and she said it it, he he just sees me he just hears me and I just feel different after I've talked to him and and he's like sometimes you know he'll check up or you know a couple oh I'm I'm good you know I because because she know she feels safe with you, and I hate that you had so much pain in your childhood, and I love how you can see and hear and validate people as an adult. But let me say this, as John Kennedy used to say, let me say this about that. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> that was one of his favorite little things. So you can tell how old I am <laughs> since I knew John Kennedy. So. um it's because of how I was raised and because of how much uh, suffering I went through that I can speak the language of suffering. Mm-hmm. 
And if I'd have gone through a nifty, clean, perfect life, not that that's bad because it's healthy lives are wonderful. I'm all for healthy lives, but it's because of going through that, that I can speak the language of pain. I can recognize it and I can sense it. So even though it was awful, I'm really great, very grateful for it because I've always believed that if you only experience pain and that's all, and you don't learn from your pain, then you've missed something because you can't walk into other people's lives very well if you haven't experienced pain and then learn from pain and then serve. So it's kind of like a three-step process. Yeah. So you, it's pain, learning, and serving and you if you can if you can think that way and say when i have my pain i'm being prepared to serve mm. and then you feel like this has a purpose or i can make it have a purpose it doesn't have to have a natural purpose make it have a purpose so you're now a more capable servant because you got beat up yes yeah if that makes sense yes you know, I I truly, I'm a huge believer that God will turn all, all things, good, bad, really ugly. He can turn them for our good. And you just described that process. Mm. That, and and I, I actually do believe you have to have pain, not just have pain, because I think all humans have pain, but acknowledge no. the pain, speak about the pain, address the pain. Feel the pain instead of numb from it, distract from it, you know, push it down and pretend like it's not there. When when we do that, we miss the learning piece, which then we can still serve on the other end of that. But it's a it's a different it's a different kind of service. It's a let me do things for you instead of, oh, I can see you. I was actually on a, a bike ride last night with a friend and. We were riding up the canyon and uh, we passed a woman who was bawling her eyes out on this trail. And I said, hey, I'll be back. And I turned around and I just went and said to her, are, are you OK? I, I, I know those tears. Are you OK? And she's, she, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm having, you know, I'll be OK. Thank you for stopping. We chatted for a second and I just, you know, basically just wanted her to feel love from someone and maybe that was all that yeah. whole moment was yeah i don't a know a difference maker but i turned back around and caught up with my friend and he asked the question how do you do that without bugging people like how do you know you're not going to offend people and i said oh that never crosses my mind i'm not worried about offending them i'm worried about them not feeling seen and that comes from my own walks on a trail. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you've been that person yeah. on the bike who's felt that way and you know what's needed. And uh, so, but I think we're afraid of how we're perceived. Don't you think that's a pretty common yes. thing? People worry about being perceived as weak. Yes. Or bad or damaged damaged and what will people so will they think of me what will they think of me if i keep it pretty yeah 
they'll think more highly of me. But I want to know, Jim, I want to know what is your definition of success? I am so intrigued by that. What, what do you, what would you say is success? Well, I think success is, uh, it's a, it's a really an internal journey. And I remember way back, I, I mean, I was probably in my thirties when I first started doing this, but I, I'd take out my, the proverbial yellow pad of paper. My kids all know I keep on my desk at home and I would write down my most dearly held values and I'd just mess with it and mess with it until I thought, this is what I actually care about Yeah, right here. I can tell you three or four or five things that I actually care about, independent of all my public successes or my personal failures, independent of all that. This is the bottom line. This is what I really care about. Now, here's the question. Do I do what I care about? And so if I do what I care about and do it sufficiently, then I feel successful. And it, to me, success, I mean, I've won a lot of awards and I've done a lot of big things. And you know what? At this stage of my life, and this, I mean, this could be it for me. This could be my last interview. And, and oh, no. at this stage of my life, seriously, what I want to be able to say when my life is over is I was true to the things that were dearest to me. Mm. That's a success. Amen. I, I, what, it's my life aligned with what I value. The most. What, the most. And so, so then here's my question, because we're humans, myself and others listening to this are thinking, well, I don't do that. <laughs> I, yeah, it's just, we obviously aren't going to always align our choices with what we value and, and why, why, what goes on inside of us when, if I really value exercise and I, and I have to do it all. Yeah. Why don't I? Why well, don't I'm, I? I'm a 10 scale fanatic. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. So I rate everything on a on a ten scale because it's not either you're true to what you right. value or you're not. It's to what degree are you true to it. So sometimes I'll go through a period of time where I think I really care about my kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a big value to me. And I haven't really addressed it. I'm really about four on the ten scale. So if I want to get up to seven or eight on a 10 scale, what do I need to do? And I make a plan and I work at it. And I mean, I actually try to, D-O is the key word. Do something different to get me more aligned. And that ebbs and flows. I mean, I have better times and worse times. Yes. But I, I think it through. I'm, I'm a planner. I'm a, I think ahead and... I try to do that, and I try to not get on myself too much when my 10 scale drops too low, because it does for everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love it so much because, you, like you said, you came from a home where there was no modeling no. of good parenting. There was no safe space for you to feel, um, to kind of look in the mirror and say, am I okay? Am I good here? Is it, there wasn't. There wasn't that safe place for you. And yet you teach and you speak about that the home is is a school. It's a space where we help our children. Tell me more about that. The home is a school. The parents are teachers. 
they are the teachers. What if they're not good teachers? Well, some people are not good teachers in the home and they don't know it. Yeah. And so this is where you you look for mentors and you look for role models. And I've always watched people because I knew that I was not on track where I wanted to be for significant portions of time. Yeah. And I would watch, I'd pick out people and I'd say, I like what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to emulate them. They are a good teacher for me. So the teacher has to look for teachers, right? And okay. and the teacher then is a student. So the teacher is a teacher and the teacher is a student. Yeah. So And you have to watch for people who can teach you yeah. and say, why do I like what they're doing? And what am I doing that I'm not satisfied with? But what are they doing that fills in for that? I'm going to do that and try to do that. So, yeah, I've I've always worked um, thoughtfully at doing my most important values. My religion is super important to me, so I think about how do I make more sacrifices. How do I do more? How do I set an example for my children of that? Not so that your worth increases, because it, but because it's something you value. Because that what you're saying. I care about dearly. So if you care about something dearly, then look around for people who do that dearly held thing in your mind. Watch what they do and learn from them and improve your self going forward rather than just criticize yourself mm. we're also self-critical people are way too self-critical but if you can take self-evaluation instead of self-criticism and self-evaluation helps you look for mentors who can teach you i love the idea that every teacher is a student i love it too Every a good teacher always is a student. Always going forward. Yeah, that allows if that's true in in parenting or in life, whether you're a whether you're a mother or a father, whether you're a CEO or you're a professor or you are starting your own business, whatever it is, if that is true, that every teacher is a learner, that leaves space for. Oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It leaves space for, um, you know, I, I can see you feel strongly about this. Help me understand where that's coming from. I mean, if, if I just commit to being a learner, regardless of where I'm at, what, what title or role or position I'm in, then I don't know. Just the connection with ourselves, with others, with God will just increase more and more. Someone asked me the other day if I like to read. Well, I love to read. And they said, what do you read? And I said, history. I will read the history of anything. If you gave me a book called The History of Sewing, I would read it. And here's why. Because history is people learning about themselves. That's what history is. So the Romans, I just bought a series of, all the Roman emperors, all the major Roman emperors, and I'm going to read it. My wife looks at me and she says, you're going to read seriously. 
a book about all the Roman emperors. Why are you doing this? And I said, because they sunk their own ship. And I want to read about when their ship was afloat. And I want to read about when their ship sunk. And I want to know why. Because that will teach me something about me floating my own boat and sinking or not sinking. And I'll learn that from them and how they did it. And biographies, Abraham Lincoln's biography is the most fascinating thing in the world because he lost every election till he became president. Why didn't he quit? Why didn't he quit? Why didn't I quit? I came out of this upside-down family. Why didn't I, and both of my parents were alcoholics, both of my brothers were drug addicts, why didn't I take out a needle instead of a history book? That's a, a needle would have anesthetized me. A history book allowed me to study people who sunk their own ship just like my family did. So I decided I was going to learn instead of sink. Okay. Yeah. I just, I want to cheer. It's <laughs> so beautiful. Well, I didn't do it perfectly. I had many ups and ups and downs. Yeah. And of course, because you're human. Exactly. But I learned from my ups and downs and my and my children have really learned that lesson because I've said it so many times. They say, Dad, you have said that to the point of nausea that people can sink from their mistakes or learn from their mistakes. And I say that's right. From their mistakes, but also from their pain. That I mean, I, I would say, I don't know what your mistakes were between zero and 17, but I'm guessing most of them came from pain inside of your life. And I, yeah, we get to, what I'm hearing you saying is we have a choice. No one is just, like you're not put on some path and you just have to stay on that path. We have agency, we have choice, we have the ability. But yeah. but if we if we hit, to that, go to that place of why then? Why don't some people choose a different path? I, I believe, and please tell me if you have a different thought or if you think I'm up. I believe it's because we don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to actually what? move through and learn, like feel it so we can heal it, I guess. Yes or no? Who likes pain? Okay. Both of my Everybody, down. Raise your hand if you like pain. <laughs> Nobody likes pain, but pain is one of our greatest teachers because it grabs us and it stands us up straight and it gets our attention. Yeah. And we can, that's when we can sink with the ship or make another choice. You remember I was telling you about Elder Worthland's talk. Yeah. And Joseph Je B. Worthland. Jo Joseph B. Worthland. And he was talking about people who face problems in their lives. And he said, Here's your key question. If you don't remember anything I said in this talk, remember this question. And the question is this, what is my next best step? Mm. And I thought, I've never forgotten that. I mean, that's not a very mm. complicated idea, is it? No. It's not a complicated idea. It's not a difficult idea. Mm. You could say that to a five-year-old, sort of. Yeah. You can make it to a 15-year-old, to a 30-year-old. Or whatever, and you can say, when you get in the middle of the your thick problem, ask yourself this question, what is my next 
best step. And if you don't know, then say, you know what? I'm going to pick three people who I trust, and I'm going to ask them, if you were in this situation, what would be your next best step? And I'm going to use them as mentors, and I'm going to become a student, and I'm going to learn, and then I'll go forward. And then when my kids face this, they'll come to me and I become the teacher because I'm a teacher only because I was a student first. I think that's the key. I do too. And that's how families families can function that way. But you have to have a family council and set it up and say to the kids, two concepts, teachers and learners, teachers and students. When are we teachers? When are we students? Yeah, and you're such a beautiful example of not like, yeah, this is how I was raised. This is, you know, I just carrying the size. You, you rebuilt the ship. You created a, a whole well, thing, tough. the Sari. Yeah. I was pretty stupid along the way. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. When we had our first kids and I said, and I said to Sherry, I said, you know, you realize you married someone who doesn't know what they're doing. She's like, yeah. <laughs> did she or did she be? I, did you fool her? <laughs> no, I mean, she thought I was a good person, but she, I think, I don't think she realized that I really was pretty clueless on how to run a family because I didn't, had never seen a, yeah. a family. But I am proof positive that you can, if you don't know how to run a family, you can watch, pick out mentors, you can learn, and you can become educated on that, and you can go forward, and you can be an example to your own children. And one of the best things a parent can do is to acknowledge openly to their children that you are on a journey as a learner, just like they are, just on different subjects, maybe. Yeah. The humility to just say, hey, I'm just learning too. And I wish I'd done that different. Or tell me how that felt. Or, yeah, thanks for helping me understand. I mean, just the humility, the ability to connect with the people that matter most to us requires us to commit to being learners. There's, there's no shame in learning. We, I mean, we don't get mad at a kindergartner. It's essential. Yes. Well, it's essential. And yeah. at some point, I don't know what happens because kindergartner comes out. My little granddaughter will bring me <laughs> drawings from school that are just one color all over, not in the lines. And I'm like, thank you. Tell me about this. There's no part of me that's like, hey, you see these lines? This needs to be better. You're five. You're, you're three. You've got, she's not in kindergarten. She's in preschool. Anyway, just wait, at some point we stop believing that we get to make mistakes or that learners have to sometimes use one color and it goes outside of the lines and then we get a little better. So thank you for sharing that whole concept. Let me tell you one more thing. The other day, well, wasn't, I always say the other day and it's been three years. Nevertheless. When you're 78. <laughs> Three years is the other day. Yeah. So the other day, meaning a few years ago, when Torin, my oldest son, turned 50, yeah. I decided when each one turns 50, I'm going to write them a letter about my thoughts about them. 
just mm. whatever. So I wrote him his 50, age 50 letter. He's now up to 54, so it's four years ago. That. Okay. All right. So anyway, I wrote him this letter and I said at the end, I said, in all honesty, here's my greatest compliment to you at age 50. I would love to be just like you. Yeah. And it's the truth. And when he got that letter, he called me and he said, you know, I don't know why you say things like that. You know that we love and admire you. And I say, that's not my point. My point is I see in you the qualities of a wonderful person. And I would love to be, even at my age, I'd like to be more like you. You are a mentor to me in so many ways. And it just bonded us together because I really do feel that way. I'm not putting myself down. I'm just saying this is my heartfelt view of you. You, as my son, have taught me so many things. Because you're committed to being a learner. Exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got, got to see the history books I have stacked up at home. And Sherry says, you're going to Smith's shopping? You know the truth is you're going to go to Barnes & Noble. <laughs> and you're going to come home with some more books. And they're going to go with the other books you haven't read. And they're history books. And I know you love history books. Because you want to learn about people and how they live their lives. And you're going to keep buying books and spending our money. I, I knew that I loved you, but the fact that you have stacks of books that you have not read yet because you want to learn. Most of my books. Connects me to you in that way. That I built two brand new bookshelves on either end of my family room. Brand new, beautiful bookshelves, and I'm filling them up as fast as I can. And Sherry's over there looking at how much money we have in the bank. <laughs> okay. Sadly, we need to come to an end. I could, you know, I... As I talk to you often on the street, I could talk for a long time. And you know how verbal I am, and I'll talk endlessly. With, at the end of each podcast, I'd like to ask, um, what are what are just one or two tools from our conversation that if someone were listening today, that they could say, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do this this week. Because I'm not, a, I, I, I understand how shame works, shame will speak to someone oh you can't do that or they don't know your life or they don't understand you know she oh easy for her to say or easy for him to say I understand that those thoughts can come into our mind but my great desire is that you whoever is listening to this will choose to say no I can choose to do one thing I can choose to do this thing so what would you suggest that be this week I'll tell you the best thing I ever did as a parent. How's that? I love it. This is the best thing. And my children and grandchildren, to a person, will agree. And I started back in 1977, because right. David, my second son, was in second grade. That would be seven years old. I yeah, think, right? okay. you're right. And he... Well, okay, I, I won't tell the whole story, but he was shy and kind of struggling with some things. 
and I wrote him a love letter. Hold on. Hold on. I, I You need to tell this part because your older son came home and said, David's not playing. You've heard, I've already told you. This. You haven't told me. I listened. I heard it in one of your speeches. Okay. So my oldest son, Torin, came home. So he was third grade. Yeah. And said, David sits on the steps at recess by himself and he's alone and he has no friends and he's very, and he's sad. Yeah. That's how he said it. Yeah. So I went down to the school, the next found David at recess. He was sitting on the steps, like Torrin said, and by himself. And I went over and sat down next time. And I said, how you doing, Dave? And he said, okay. I said, are you sad? And he said, yes. And I said, how come? And he said, I don't have anyone to play with. Hmm. So, so I went back to my office. And I wrote him a love letter and just a love letter, how much I loved him and how much he meant to me. And I mailed it to him at school. Now, you got to be really <laughs> wacko to do this, but I mail it to him at school, care of his second grade teacher. She got the letter gets there. She goes and hands it to him in the classroom. And the other kids are going, what's that? It's a letter from my dad. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he carried that letter in his pocket for weeks. And to this day, now he's an international arbitrator attorney in Japan. He travels all over the world and does all these big things. And to this day, he says, the most significant thing you ever did in my life for me that I can remember is when you wrote me the love letter at school in the second grade. Yeah. Because you voted for me. You voted for me. And I've never forgotten it. So I started, I learned a lesson from that. I started writing love letters. And I've written love letters to this day. I write them to my grandkids. I write them to their, my children's spouses. When they marry one of my kids, they say, be careful because you're going to get love letters from my dad. <laughs> and so... I would say this, write, I don't care if you call it a love letter, write personal letters to people in your family. Put it in the mail with a stamp on it because nobody does that, right? And they'll never forget that a letter came in the mail and this is it and they'll keep it and they'll reread it and tell them how you feel about them. Notice something about them. Say, I noticed this about you recently or you did this recently, and you know what? Let me tell you what I think about that, and let me tell you what I think about you, and you are so important to me, and you're going to get more of these letters that so don't think this is the last one. So if you do that, you will teach, and you will love, and you will build, and you will strengthen, and you'll give hope to people, and they'll know you're out there. You're on there. All during the journey, you are out there. Yeah. And that's how I do it. I write love letters. Okay. That's so beautiful. And I'm sitting here as a 53-year-old recognizing. You're just a youth. <laughs> but recognizing that I have a file of letters from people who have done exactly what you said. Yeah. That 
Go reread them. They're not, I need to. They're not a file. They're actually in a folder in my closet. <laughs> and I'm going to. I'm going to go reread them. And I'm going to write. Because there are so many people in my life that I want them to know I'm on their team. So thank you, Jim MacArthur. We didn't even get to talk about respect for adults. We wanted to talk about that. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll go there another time. Another <laughs> thank you for coming. Well, thank you. Thank you. Inviting me. And this is great. I think it's great. You're just letting people talk about being human. <laughs> We're all trying to be human and stay on our feet. Right? That's exactly so, right. I so appreciate your wisdom. And I mostly appreciate your genuineness. I'm so grateful for individuals like you that will ask the second question, how are you really? So I would say write letters and with people that you care about, ask the second question, how are you really? Really? Yeah, yeah. that's right. I, I, I vote for that. You will have many choices in your day. I hope you'll choose to do the work. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, share a written experience, or ask me a question, go to coachchristy.life and fill out the podcast questionnaire, and we'll be in touch with you soon. There are no dumb questions or experiences, just opportunities to learn and do the work. Have a great week.